Alyssa will pet an alakazam. Maria will dance with Anna, the virtual Web3 human. <laughs> Tammy, I'm curious what we come up with, but those are going to be hard to the top. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Metacast Roundtable by Navic. Uh, you should listen to us weekly to stay up to date with all the latest game business news and how they impact the future of games. And if you enjoy this content, you know it. I'm going to say like and subscribe so that we can reach a broader audience. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Bush, co-founder of Navic, Tammy Levy, chief games officer at Captain TV, and Alyssa Goldberg, head of growth at Powder. Hey, everyone. Hello. Howdy. Hey there. Aaron, where's your enthusiastic hello this week? I gave a howdy this week. Was that not, not good <laughs> enough? My, my hellos are getting critiqued left and right. Man. It was pretty good. Um, yeah, Alyssa, thanks for joining us for the first time. And anytime someone joins us for the first time, I like to ask a question. And that's what's been on my mind is to understand what people like to pet in-game. So if there's one animal, any animal can be a fa fantasy animal or a real animal. Which animal would you pick to pet in a game? Okay, so I gave this one a lot of thought and I realized that I had never actually played a game in which I was able to pet a pet inside oh. of the game. But what? I will say that, I know, but my love of games was first cultivated uh, with many, many years and many generations of Pokemon. Uh, and I think that for me, uh, if I, I think I'm sure there's something to unpack here in therapy about wanting to pet an Abra <laughs> a, and a Kadabra and an Alakazam over time, just because they were my most loyal, uh, my most loyal teammates. But I should probably pick something cuddlier, uh, maybe like an Eevee or something like that. Um, I just I like things that are round and fluffy like everyone else. Uh, but I also like uh, loyalty. Wow. That's such a that's, good answer. That's a deep. That's a deep answer. I love it. There is a lot to unpack here. <laughs> Petting an Alakazam, man. That, yeah, I was not expecting that. I don't know if I, I survive, it. but I would try. <laughs> I mean, if it's all about loyalty, I think I think you're good. I think you're good. The loyalty test, a hug. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we're going to dive into uh, some updates before going into the discussion topics. Uh, the media topics we'll be diving into are Nintendo's earnings and some predictions about their strategy and also discussing with Alyssa leading the topic, what's the evolution of community play? So if everyone's good, I think I'll just kick off the updates because I'm the first one. Okay. So very quickly, I looked into Unity's earnings. It has been earnings season. The past two episodes are about earnings. And this episode is also about earnings. So Unity landed very close to expectations, which was supported by lowering the fiscal year guidance last quarter. And that has led to growing confidence that Unity's rate of growth is expected to accelerate. The revenue increased 13% year over year. However, their operations solutions, that includes their ad tech, declined 7%. This is mainly from the ongoing ad algorithm issues that they've been suffering. So Unity has a history of struggling to rein in their expenses, um, but with the recession and post-pandemic decline, it's going to be harder to get away with this. I think Aaron, you have some thoughts on this earnings update? Yeah, I mean, I think the bottom line in my opinion, really for any company, is that when revenue growth slows, your losses heighten, and dilution accelerates all at once, it doesn't matter how incredible your tech is, you're still getting whacked and destroyed in the market, right? And and maybe that'll improve um, from here for Unity. It, it kind of has to. And the hope of that promise is what turbocharged the stock this past week. It was up like 50% this past week. Um, but, you know, even with the the merger with Iron Source, which also just closed, you know, that deal's coming from a position of weakness on on both sides for macro and micro issues. So, you know, the company will probably get more profitable in the near future from Unity's lens. And yeah, the operate solutions weirdness will largely dissipate. But, I mean, the fact of the matter is that there's a lot more work to do for this combined company to really level up its execution, streamline its costs, because, uh, yeah, having 74% um, of revenue be in losses and 
half of revenue just be like, <laughs> you know, taken back by stock based comp. That's ridiculous. And, um, you know, they just largely need to, to reset and be better and more streamlined coming out of this bear market. So hopefully they can they can do that. But the numbers were pretty darn ugly, in my opinion. Uh, I think that will tie nicely into Tammy's update about Nuzu. Uh, yeah, so uh, quick update. Nuzu uh, updated their forecast uh, this year for, I believe, it's the third time. Uh, and, you know, with all of these... Um, Earnings reports coming out. They've had a lot of data to dig into, as we all have, and they forecasted a down year um, for the gaming market for the first time. Um, so, as I mentioned, they uh, released their annual kind of forecast for the whole gaming market in terms of players, revenue, etc. Um, and in May, they lowered. They they had estimated over. Uh, 200 billion in revenue for the gaming segment um, sector this year. They lowered that in July and they just lowered it again to a decline of four, a little bit over 4% year over year. Um, so a couple of notes behind this downward uh, revision, because it might sound like gloom is like, oh, now the gaming market might be, might be shrinking. Um, it's actually a, uh, Kind of like a very interesting story to to unfold because it comes from a lot of different little pieces here and there, uh, where PC games are relatively flat uh, right now. Uh, it's a, definitely a slower year for console games, so they're contributing to this decline, uh, and that's combined f- uh, between uh, game releases delayed and hardware uh, hardware shortages. So there's less consoles being sold. On the mobile side, uh, we kind of have gone in depth and at length on on all the trends in the market, but the market has changed significantly, including the IDFA changes, which uh, also impacts the expected revenue from mobile games and how game mobile games are performing. Um, region-wise, China has also been cracking down on mobile games, being one of the, the biggest uh, sector. That is also contributing to the decline. Uh, and we see North America and uh, Europe also with a smaller decline being forecasted. So it kind of just adds all of the, the different pieces in, you know, resulting in this forecast of a down year for uh, the gaming industry. Uh, but when you kind of take a step back and zoom out, uh, the correction, uh, it, it looks more of a correction in, in the industry tra- uh, trajectory. Um, so we had really, really good years in 2020 and 2021. We had booms with uh, the pandemic and just, um, you know, the market, like the segment really growing. Um, so if you look at what Newsu was forecasting before the pandemic, uh, 2022 is actually going to end up right around what they had forecasted before the pandemic. So it feels much more of a correction not saying that you know we don't have all of these other uh, external factors and you know recession and all of these other pieces um that are going into it but it's uh it's more you know it's it's a story to unpack and it's not just that the the industry is um shrinking yeah do you do you think the correction came in too late though like third quarter of the year i i yeah <laughs> Yeah, it it does, and I think that there was still a lot of optimism. Go ahead, Tammy. I cut you off. Uh, I think there was still a lot of optimism from a bunch of companies putting their uh, guidances for the year, right? From you know companies on the mobile space feeling like they were not going to get hit as hard. Um, you know, companies in the PC and console space uh, expecting to launch their games and getting delayed. Uh, I don't know. Just thinking through, are there any other factors? But I think I think it's coming late, uh, kind of from that point of view, in terms of like companies' expectations, uh, plus the you know the recession really starting to stress test um, this idea of are games recession proof or not? Which I think they're recession resilient, but not recession proof. Yeah, I think the the main takeaway 
I think your analysis is right, but the main takeaway from Newsu's revised forecast, in my opinion, is less about the market, which has been this way all year, and more that that Newsu just did a horrible job forecasting. Um, you know, in their their previous revised 2022 forecast from July, they were still forecasting that mid single digit growth in mobile. When in Q1 and Q2, though the mobile results from those quarters they were already out and very very much down for obvious reasons. So. You know, not not only was Newzu wrong in their forecast initially, but it took them eleven out of the twelve months of this year <laughs> to figure it out and change. So to me, that's crazy. Yeah. It's kind of a joke. Um, yeah, what, what was surprising for me is like the the quick re- revision, right? Of like May, July, and then November. It's and they're like big revisions. They're not like small tweaks here and there. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely agree with with your take of like, hey, it's 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 ridiculous that it took them this long to figure out like the the trend. Yeah, maybe we should stop listening to Nizu. It's sort of my my <laughs> my take on all of this. <laughs> yeah, I was really impressed. I didn't realize when Call of Duty released Modern Warfare that they were going to release an entirely new Warzone. I thought they were going to update Warzone with new content, but I didn't realize it's a complete 2.0 on a new engine. Um, it's just very impressive, and I'm keen to see the results of how much impact it has on Warzone in keeping up with the technology and the improvements that the other part, the other titles in the franchise are doing. I have a quick and question. And it, it feels like a like a franchise approach, right? And sorry, I'll, uh, to cut you off. Yeah, it feels like a franchise approach uh, where they're going all in on it. They built this common engine for. Uh, Call of Duty Modern Warfare, uh, Warzone is powered by the same engine that released uh, today, I believe. And then Warzone Mobile is coming up next year, and it's also built on that same engine. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's forward. it's definitely like very bold and all in. Yeah, we can all look forward to the 100 gigabyte download to get home to you <laughs> later on tonight. Um, Alyssa, sorry, you had a, a question. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to ask everyone, I mean, do you think that it's that the forecast was poorly done and not done soon enough? Or do you think that it's just getting more difficult to accurately predict the where the trajectory of the gaming industry if it's increasingly more hit-driven the way that you know TV and film is or music is, where there's a huge gulf between huge successes and big blockbusters and kind of more... Uh, you know, the, everything else. I think that they were, Newsy was generally right with everything except for mobile. And on mobile, they were just like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how they were so wrong. But um, yeah, I mean, forecasting growth when for at least two quarters, all you see is declines. That makes no sense. I mean, I do think it gets tougher when um, more like structural changes happen, like, you know, Apple changing the rules and it gets harder when, you know, COVID whiplash happens and you're figuring out what is what is a, you know, an acceleration, like a long term acceleration versus like a pull forward from the future. And those things are hard to forecast around. But but yeah, for the sake of this, it was just news. It was really bad with mobile as sort of my bottom line. Fair enough. Um, yeah, we'll jump into then AppLovin's earnings. So they reported a revenue of a decline of 2%. Uh, their apps revenue declined 24% as they continued to optimize the portfolio of apps to drive, drive higher cash flow. This is a quote from their earnings. And this is mainly due to a decline in consumer revenue from Project Makeover and Matchington Mansion, their first and second highest revenue generating games. So I use Data AI to go and look at their um, other portfolio games that drive key revenue, and they're also in decline. The only exception that I saw is Cash Tornado slots that managed to maintain a relatively stable re- revenue this year. We can also see that Project Makeover's revenue decline on iOS is sharper than Android, which matches the game's much sharper decline in downloads on iOS. So I'm assuming that considering a percentage of the revenue is driven from iOS, the impacts of ATT are being exacerbated for AppLovin. So I think AppLovin is facing a challenge of developing and scaling new hit mobile games um, because their top performers are starting to reach product maturity and they have to renew their portfolio. And I think trying to do that in an environment where there are exacerbated impacts of ATT on iOS 
Um, additionally, Apple 11 is reducing UA budgets so that they can focus on profitability over revenue, and that affects the downloads that you can get. So I'll be really keen to follow if there are in the investment of entering the connected TV market for their advertising solution, if they can cover out a new market there as we start to see some um, subscription and streaming services offering ads for lower price tiers. Well, we'll have to keep an eye on um, the new hit games that they can produce. All right, uh, Roblox earnings. So the Roblox earnings were analyzed by Navic's free newsletter, Navic Digest. So if you find this valuable, you can sign up to the free newsletter. I'll just quickly run through the high-level takeaways from David Taylor's analysis. So there were higher-than-expected losses due to operating costs, primarily headcount, being higher than expected as Roblox hired around 600 new employees in the last year. So Navic's conclusion from the uh, third quarter earnings call is that Roblox is ex executing on its focus areas despite the suboptimal macroeconomic environment because they're still trying to capture the strategic opportunities that we've laid out in previous episodes, such as the audience aging up and also investing in new opportunities for monetization. I don't know if, um, yeah, you saw that now they have these wearables that can adapt to any kind of character form. It was, yeah, pretty cool. So the 13%, oh, sorry, 13%, <laughs> the 13 plus cohort grew by 34% from a year ago um, compared to the overall DAU growth of 24% year over year. So their investment in trying to cater to an older audience is paying off. There are also brands who commission Roblox developers to implement their experiences, which ends up funding and investing in trying to get more um, games and other experiences onto the platform. Uh, the bookings growth has slowed, but we've seen slowdown across the games industry. Um, but looking at Roblox's DAU of the audience growth, the monetization opportunities, I think we should expect bookings to take off when the macroeconomic environment improves. And it will, will also come in as their audience is aging even further. So if they're, they're able to retain their their core audience uh, and their core demographic it feels like they're they're setting up themselves for really really strong growth yeah that's a really good point yeah which i think is important because i guess um i mean obviously it's good to see the user growth aging up i kind of wish it would translate to better business but they're obviously still held back by you know app store take rates and just the structure of that but you know, if you look big picture, I think the, the main thing to emphasize is that, like, it's really critical that Roblox makes the most of the moment it's currently in, meaning that there's a window between all the acceleration benefits COVID gave them and the inevitable rise of competition. And right now they're kind of in this sweet spot where they don't really have big competitors that do what they do. And, you know, Roblox is largest competitive advantage besides its network effect of users and developers right now is its R&D budget, which is about to tip a $1 billion run rate. <laughs> and at that level of scale of reinvesting is something very, very few companies can match. So, you know, I think it's hypercritical that they reinvest appropriately to best age up, capture ground and future proof themselves from, from what others probably mainly Epic eventually spin up in the next couple of years. I don't really know how well they're reinvesting, but you know, if in a couple of years, the, the narrative, you know, it might change to being one of renewed competition, which will then be more expensive to compete on in other ways. And so what they do right now ultimately has the largest impact on what happens then. So I don't know. I'm curious to see how that narrative plays out, but for now, you know, I think it's mainly important just to look at their, speed and quality of execution and being able to level up the platform and you know what that means for capturing and retaining users while doing so and so far that seems to be pretty good but i guess we'll see how that translates to business and the fact that they've been hiring so much um, when other companies have you know been kind of leaning the opposite i'm curious if that'll continue to be the case um but i guess i guess we'll see over the next probably a couple of quarters I don't think there are signs of them slowing down on on hiring and staffing uh, as opposed to other you know, just a, the broader tech uh, industry slowing down or even shrinking. So yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how how they execute in the next uh, couple of quarters and where they're at. Yeah, yeah. I just look because I think they're 
their people expenses, they rose like 50% over the past year, but their their bookings, you know, for this last quarter were only at 10%. So there's a little bit of a disconnect there. So yeah, I'm curious to see how that goes. But yeah, ultimately, if that's what it takes to build a platform that can compete for a very long time, I think that's probably the right decision. Okay, Alyssa, yeah, on to FTX's impact on gaming. Oof. Uh, okay. To start, I think that, that sound, that groan is exactly what we've all been following, like tabloid drama over the last couple of days. It feels like, uh, FTX is a big black hole that's been sucking, uh, everything in its orbit into it. Um, but the, just, just for how, uh, it's been interacting with gaming. So first, um, of course there was the FTX gaming division unit that had about 100 million to deploy, but that was operated through its US affiliate FTX US. Uh, and that's not really implicated, well, partially implicated in uh, all of the, the drama going down. Uh, but the rest of the operations, um, and in, in particular FTX Ventures uh, and FTX the, the Exchange were very tightly tied to uh, several game studios, the esports teams and to, to various blockchains. Um, so just for a ballpark, uh, FTX Ventures since the beginning of the year had made uh, 47 investments into games uh, and and like Web3 X gaming projects like Axie Infinity and Mythical Games and Far Away and Star Atlas uh, and had also purchased Good Luck Games. And at the, as soon as the news dropped a couple days ago, Star Atlas, kind of one of the most hotly anticipated AAA uh, Web3 games uh, that that should be uh, pretty exciting. Um, and full disclosure is one of our, our partners at Powder uh, is one of the most affected uh, among, among the studios. They announced that their runway was reduced by one half uh, in a statement put out by their CEO, Michael Wagner, who was saying that they had material cast exposure in particular because they had put um, some of their treasury into low risk yield accounts uh, that's their words on the hope that it would generate four to five percent. Uh, immediately, their their own token Atlas was down over ninety eight percent on the weekend. Um, Star Atlas had been, you know, very very transparent, but really very wild to see as they kind of scramble go into a strategic fundraising round. Uh, and it's easy to imagine that there are other startups and games in the same position, but it's really not clear who yet. Um, because maybe everyone is kind of like counting, you know, doing their own accounting yeah. and uh, chatting internally about what the next steps might be. Um, in the esports world, they FTX had made obviously a very public deal with TSM. It was a ten-year and two hundred ten million dollar deal. Um, to date, they have one hundred sixty-eight, or FTX had one hundred sixty-eight million left to pay out that TSM will likely never get. Um, and, you know, I think that there, it was already hard enough in a lot of ways for esports community, for gamers to uh, align with Web3 in the first place. And I, I can imagine that it would be tough to get these kinds of sponsors on board uh, into the future. Also in esports, uh, FTX had sponsored the biggest North American League of Legends league, LCS. It was the premier crypto sponsor. It was on the scoreboard of every LCS game. Uh, and it was that sponsorship was supposed oh, to yeah. last until the end of the 2028 lull season. Um, FTX was also involved in Furia and Nerd Street Gamers. They had a lot of money in Solana, which is a super active gaming blockchain, which is all to say that while, you know, FTX wasn't, you know, it wasn't a gaming company. It wasn't necessarily uh, explicitly uh, interested in gaming. It was interested in gaming as a way to onboard people to crypto who would then keep their money on FTX and do God knows what with it. So uh, as far as what does this all mean, you know, companies that were directly in business with FTX have to all put out statements of how exposed they were and what damage was done. And this is gaming developers, this is investors, this is, and this includes ones who, you know, are, haven't been vocal yet, maybe. Um, the market has, of course, recoiled and is spooked. Uh, this probably means that any Web3 gaming project will have a harder time of fundraising in the next few months and will also 
you know, as the fundraising climate is becomes more and more difficult for projects like that, uh, we'll see the death of many companies who raised in 2020. Uh, and it's, you know, it's not clear whether they'll go out with a whimper or a bang. We'll see. And then, uh, you know, I think it's a real sink or swim moment in the kind of investors versus gamers in, you know, cryptocurrencies versus blockchain. It kind of encourages people to take a stance on yeah. um, what could be potentially interesting for gaming long term versus what's kind of a passing fad. What's about what's for speculators and what's like the underlying technology about digital ownership and transfer of assets and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think like, it's really unfortunate to everyone who has losses due to what happened. At the end of the day, I'm still quite positive about what it means to the environment, um, well, to the space of Web3 gaming, because it's it's just so bleeding edge that when we have challenges, when we have deep, deep rooted, rooted problems, it helps shift into a better direction in the long in the long game. So I'm expecting that actually, you know, once we get over all of the consequences, I think the impacts are still not fully known, like you described. I think at the end of it, we'll just be in a better place and we'll have more direction into what makes a sustainable Web3 gaming economy. And not just gaming, but just crypto in general. Yeah, the for me, I think it's just that the process of rebuilding trust with consumers is going to take a long time and that has a, a bigger impact than you know whatever games FTX as an investor um, had or you know what companies stored money on FTX so i mean yeah the the rebuilding of trust point is you know the major thing to to kind of work through i sort of doubt it'll have an oversized impact on blockchain gaming as a whole, mainly because, you know, for the most part, blockchain gaming already imploded before FTX did. Um, and that that sector's all like it's already going through a soul searching reset. And at the end of the day, you know, 95% of what matters there is just can these Web3 games teams build awesome and entertaining games that people want to play at scale. And and that's a factor that teams are much more fully in control of and pr- shouldn't be overly as influenced by or affected by outside events like exchanges and you know whatever else goes on but to the to the extent that it impacts trust and just kind of tarnishes the the branding of web3 and what people feel comfortable doing with their money it could have some type of impact to work through i i would, I would challenge that a little bit because i think that there's people who who have put money into web3 or people who are not the consumers that don't understand quite Web3 just yet. Um, so I think that there's like some optics to manage uh, and like some trust to rebuild, but I don't think it's going to be like a deep rooted, like trust building with the the consumer space. I think it's, uh, I think it's like a big shakeup, um, especially around just like funds that teams have available at, like at their fingertips, of course, like, you know, teams that, uh, and companies that had made deals with, uh, FTX and, you know, we're expecting that, that funding to come through <laughs> and materialize and it's not going to happen. It's, I feel like where we're seeing some, um, uh, kind of just extra damage across the Web3 ecosystem is teams that might have had good, uh, products and could have delivered really good games and really good products. Um, you know, if they had partner, if they partner with the wrong partner, uh, you know, they're in along for the, the ride of not being able to execute. Uh, but ultimately it's kind of like shaking, shaking the tree and see who had like the, the secure funding and the right ideas. Uh, we're starting to see that already with games and the broader, uh, web three ecosystem. I feel like where that place where it's like just shaking all over and see who who can withstand um, the storm. And then talking about storms, last but not least, I'll dive into the Crafton's earnings. So I cut this in half because I got really excited doing this research. Um, <laughs> I was doing a bunch of earnings analysis and I went into a rabbit hole and I fell in love with Crafton. So I didn't expect <laughs> that in my night. <laughs> <laughs> so wow. just as a reminder <laughs> i know a statement of love right here live on the metacast 
So yeah, reminder, the PC and console version of PUBG Battlegrounds, it went free to play in January and the Switch landed an impressive MAU and sales growth. They're still uh, living on that tail off and trying to dig into it further. In terms of the earnings results, so revenue unfortunately declined 17% year over year as PUBG's mobile's revenue is down 26% year over year due to Battlegrounds Mobile India ban and also the general mobile gaming headwinds. So you can see that there's just a common theme across all of the earnings this quarter. The impacts of PUBG Mobile are extremely significant for the overall performance because if we go back to Q1, that game was responsible for 75% of Crafton's record high revenue. They continue their efforts in trying to repeal the India ban um, or the delist, but there are some key hires from their um, India operations that have left. So people are getting more and more skeptic and uncertain if they will ever be able to be relisted. And um, reportedly, 55% of PUBG Mobile's revenue in H122 came from China. So we'll have to, we spoke a little bit about China's micro environment, and we'll have to keep an eye out to see if it affects Crafton's performance in the following quarters. Um, unfortunately, as well, I looked into the results of PUBG's uh, mobile first new state game. And yeah, unfortunately, it's just not, it's just not performing well. There's a declined combined monthly revenue that's about 500k nowadays. And looking at a company like Crafton and the other titles that they have in PUBG, it's just very low. But yeah, hopefully one, the devs. Sorry. Which one was New State? What, what was that game for? Uh, it's for mobile. It's imagine PUBG Mobile, but actually built mobile first, where the core loop is is shorter, the maps are smaller. Yeah, it's trying to reinvent it from the ground like, up. And, and replace PUBG Mobile? or I don't, I don't think so. Interesting. Confusing. I, I think it's too... Yeah, I found it a little bit confusing as well. Maybe that's why it didn't find a market. Um, it's not different enough to pull the players. But then they'll also be cannibalizing PUBG Mobile's game. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not too sure. I have to look into it more. Uh, lastly, their operating profit, it declined significantly year over year, also due to personnel costs growing to deliver Crafton's ambitions and also increased spend ov overall for the new global launches that they have, uh, mainly the Callisto Protocol. It's a PC console game that's releasing in December this year. Uh, I did follow up with the games. I'm so excited that they're developing. Does anyone have anything to say on the earnings before I go in hype mode? I, no. I want to hear the hype mode. Yeah, that's that's the part I'm waiting for. What are you excited for that's not PUBG Mobile? <laughs> <laughs> um, so they have a new major studio in Canada that's going to do an adaptation of the Burr That Drinks Tears fantasy novels. It's inspired by Korean mythology. It looks like dark fantasy. It's going to be a transmedia project. And if you look at the concept trailer, it looks so cool. I love epic dark fantasy, so I'm definitely going to keep an eye out for that. Um, additionally, the Unknown Worlds, who are developers of the Subnautica series, they announced Moonbreaker that is officially entering um, early access, and it is a turn-based competitive tabletop tactics designed with digital miniatures. And the best thing that gets me excited is that the sci-fi universe was crafted by Brandon Sanderson, I don't know him. He's a really popular fantasy book author. And he wrote my favorite fantasy series of Stormlight Archive. So imagine that That's with cool. miniatures, with the amazing studio. The art looks so rad. I love it. <laughs> I'm so excited. And I also know what book series I'm going to be reading all winter. <laughs> so. Oh, if you like fantasy, Stormlight Archive is superb. Highly recommended to everyone's Christmas periods and holidays. Uh, and then lastly, we talked about games, but then Crafton's also developing a hyper-humanistic virtual human called Anna. Um, and Anna is, I think, just an experimental test bed where they're trying to create this digital person who has a band. Um, I think looking at how Crafton has been approaching collaborations, they had a whole Blackpink music video that was filmed within PUBG. I think it's really impressive to see a company that is diving into these avatars and trying to create digital people, uh, really, 
but then it really dives into their core strengths that can be applied to their games and for their leveling up these experiences. Yeah, but if you haven't seen the music video, I also recommend that. It just looks so cool. So is is Anna actually like it doesn't it's not creepy looking uh no virtual human? She looks so cool. I really want to be your friend and go dance with her. Like she really <laughs> looks fun. So is she more of like a VTuber or is she more of like an avatar? I'm trying to, I'm also trying to understand like what the Web3 tie-in is, where Anna lives, where she's going to be. I think we're creating, this is, this has become a tabletop <laughs> RPG podcast and we're going to create Anna's back, backstory. <laughs> okay, well, we're getting um, some good stuff though. Yeah. I, Alyssa will pet an Alakazam. Maria will dance with Anna, the virtual Web3 human. <laughs> Tammy, I'm curious what we come up with, but those are going to be hard to the top. Well, maybe the Nintendo earnings will take you somewhere. We'll go give us some inspiration. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, yes, the final earnings of the day. Earnings season is always a tsunami, so there's always so much to talk about. But yeah, let's talk about Nintendo. So in short, Sales were up 5%, net profits were up even more. But that's actually pretty overstating things because the yen has weakened versus the dollar. So the cleaner view to understand the business is just to look at unit sales of the hardware and software. And from that lens, hardware unit sales of the Switch were down 19% over the past year. And um, software, the game unit sales, they were basically flat up like a percent and a half. And you know, that's normal just as the install base of the Switches grows, which is now over 100 million. And similar to other consoles these days, the story is really just the same. There are supply chain issues, mainly semiconductor shortages, and that spurred the majority of that decline in Switch sales. And because of those shortages, Nintendo lowered its fiscal 2023 revenue forecast downward. But like we have said elsewhere, all of these supply chain issues are short-term in nature. And what's more interesting than you know, figuring out the little details of that is determining whether Nintendo's broader trajectory has changed at all. So we'll, we'll discuss that in a minute, and I'm curious what everyone thinks about that. But first, let me just walk through some other informative tidbits um, from everything that happened in the, the earnings announcements. And one thing to call out is, um, you know, now that the, the Switch is six years old, 30% of Switch purchases recently are now additional systems, meaning that there's a growing trend of multi-Switch households. And that's something that we saw historically with handhelds like the Game Boy and DS, but, but not consoles. So that's, that's very much a positive for Nintendo's strategy today. And it's good to see, um, you know, that, that little extra growth catalyst get unlocked there. And obviously on the hardware side, Nintendo continues to drive different SKUs. There's the original Switch, the Switch Lite, now the OLED model, and in aggregate, those are attractive to a wider range of people than if they just had one model. And all of that you know, has built up to a couple notable things. One, uh, the number of active Switch users continues to grow. It just hit 106 million over the past 12 months, which is up 15% from the last year. And second, um, at least in my view, it's pretty obvious that um, Nintendo's hardware strategy today is basically what it's going to be going forward for many more years. It's just going to be more of the same. And there will be more upgrades and variety in order to draw more first-time purchases, replacement purchases, and additional units per household. But it'll still you know, just be more of the same. And you know, compared to the past, there are software benefits from this too. Because now Nintendo can build around one consistent device platform instead of splitting games among different consoles versus handhelds and that isn't new but it's working well with their their top ips and they've gotten better at add-on content related to that too and it also helps building on one platform when when creating a singular online subscription service and nintendo online now has 36 million members and so that has been um, a tailwind for them as well and, and lastly Nintendo, this isn't new, but they continue to invest in their IP outside of games. Super Nintendo World um, is open, has been open in Japan for a while. It's the, the, the version in the US at Universal Studios is opening in 2023. They have a ton of branded merchandise, like always. 
Um, the the Mario movie is coming out next year, so that'll be interesting to see how that does. And none of that really moves the needle financially in like a long term kind of way, but it does reinforce the brand. And Nintendo's goal with all of these things is just to drive people to the Switch and want to engage with these brands even more. So the bottom line, looking at this, and then I'll hand it over, is that. You know, temporary weak Switch sales aside, Nintendo is in a solid position. And in a time when mobile and many other businesses are fundamentally struggling, that has appeal. And elements like getting better at digital add-ons and Nintendo Online, plus doing uh, more with IP, all of that is good to see. And it adds some growth around the edges uh, for Nintendo. But that said, I don't think they're actually is that much uh, in terms of interesting stuff business-wise. Nintendo isn't really leading the future of games. As I said, the strategy is just going to be more of the same, more great games and more types of Switches, which is fine. Um, But this isn't a business that really seeks out big new growth opportunities. And it doesn't really use its $8 billion in cash super effectively other than paying a dividend. So... My my prediction is that in the same way that Nintendo has gotten more niche over the past 10 to 15 years because it sticks to the same approach while the rest of the industry expands and kind of builds around it, I think that's going to continue to be the case. Um, and Nintendo will just be a good business, but more and more niche over time. So I'm curious what you all think. Um, and I guess to start, do you think my my bottom line is right? Do you agree that Nintendo's strategy will probably just be more of the same? And is that good or bad? Can't wait to disagree with you. Okay, hit me. <laughs> so I, looking back at the start of the history of Nintendo and how they've evolved themselves over time and conquered like the US market post-Atari and just finding fun and building out their, their niche business... I'm always very impressed at how Nintendo, they carve out their own path. Um, And it's special, you know, like the games of Nintendo are way more expensive than the secondhand games market, even in the other consoles. And yet people buy a Switch. A household has more than one Switch. People want to play Nintendo's games. And if we look at the history of R&D in the company, it's, it's solid. All of the developments and evolution of their hardware and releasing the switch completely reinventing the handheld model of combining hardware and software i think more is to come so some evidence of that is looking at i believe last year they invested around five percent um into r&d and if we look at their earnings they increased uh the amount that they're spending this year up to september compared to last year they just made a purchase in Kyoto for a 12-story R&D center to continue building out their research and development team. Um, that's only due to be ready in uh, 2027. And in all of the analysis that I've seen, there is an acceptance that the Switch is entering product maturity and that they have to start investing in what will come next. So I do completely agree with you that what we'll see over the next Uh, maybe three, four years will be a continued strategy of the Switch and games and maybe even uh, a new model for people to buy. I do think that they will impress us with what will come next. And just some additional evidence to that is looking at the other games, sorry, not games, but add-ons to the Switch that they've been developing. So they did this Mario Kart game where you build um, a track in your own house and then you're basically playing with your Switch and you can see Mario driving through your house in a different perspective. And you can buy multiples of those and then you can play together with your friends through the tracks that you build. And then additionally, they're also making VR somewhat more accessible with these Toy-Con products that they have, where it's all about getting people hands-on with the cardboard, building out the experience and then actually experience playing with it. And there's one about this robot. Do you remember that movie where there's the robot that goes boxing with the human boxing? I don't know. No. It's with Hugh Jackman. It's a great, great movie as well. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, I think seeing the other tech investment in R&D being more digital, you're more immersed, you're more closed off within this digital world. I like seeing Nintendo exploring. How can we make 
how can we combine real life fun and interactability with the digital? And that's why I'm hopeful that we will see something exciting from Nintendo in three, four years. My take on this is that um, it's a little bit somewhere, somewhere in between of like Nintendo is going to be Nintendo and Nintendo is going to do what Nintendo is going to do. Um, I think it is they're going to continue in that strategy. So kind of like broad, broad strokes of like more of the same. I think it it is part of their strategy. It's just they play it very safe until they have like a big like something they can really bet on like kind of like how we saw it with the switch right so it's like they they continue to really be very good executors on what they're doing at the moment while they're investing in the future i am curious when you know what that future is going to be uh especially coming from you know the success that they've had with the switch um and, you know, really finding kind of like that sweet spot of like a hybrid console and handheld device. Uh, so in terms of just like their hardware strategy, I think that it is going to be kind of, they're going to keep going as they are on the same until, you know, they're, they have high confidence on the next thing. And it's not just like a small, at least my hope is, is that Nintendo continues to deliver. And like, it's not just like a small incremental update on their hardware but it's like it's it's an evolution which is what they've you know done in the past so in terms of hardware strategy um i think it's kind of like a combination of both in terms of uh games and and just their ip i think like they're just really good at sur continue to surface their ip and continue to leverage their ip and that's what something like the switch has been able to like they've been really doubling down and just getting more out of all of their IP. So I'm I'm curious to see, you know, what what else can we can we see from from Nintendo? I think like the more they put their IP in front of uh players and consumers, the more we want as consumers and I don't know if they can move at that speed because they're also kind of slow. They move at Nintendo speed, I would say. Um, so that's a, the flip side. I, I, I'm not sure they can keep up with uh, demand on the on the content side, even as they've gotten better at incremental updates. Yeah, and I think just my one thing that I'm thinking about is I, I feel like Nintendo is the hyper conservative version of Disney in a lot of ways, um, and I think that you know with with a business like Nintendo or a business like Disney, right? You have your endemic IP, or you could then like acquire lots of other IP to then, you know, funnel into whatever your distribution is, or you can find kind of more creative ways to distribute what you already have. And it feels like Switch is a, a good bet as a way to uh, to distribute in the long term. But I kind of, I tend to agree with Aaron in that it it's not clear to me what what, if anything, uh, new will come out of Nintendo in the next couple of years because they're not very acquisitive. They, um, you know, maybe they will keep finding new distribution channels for for the Mario franchise or for something else. Um, but at some point, it's like it can't all be funneled into Switch forever. So either they'll need some other way to distribute it or something else to distribute. Yeah, that's all interesting. I think that the Switch form factor is just so good like being able to have the like the totally. hybrid handheld and controller it just works so well for um for Nintendo as a business that the the company's largest like long-term risk it always has been it always will be is them basically taking something that works and then launching something new that just flops <laughs> and you see like this is the history of Nintendo it's like it's a very volatile company where I forget, like the Nintendo 64 did well, but then the GameCube underperformed, then the Wii outperformed, then the Wii U flopped, then the, the Switch did well. And it's just like, even if you look at like the stock chart of something like Nintendo, it's just up and down, you know, with the flows of like the the, the generations that worked and succeeded. And even today, like the, I think like the stock is below where it was at like the highs of the the Wii, just to give some perspective. And so, the worst thing they could do is is mess with what's working really well right now and that could be iterated on for a long period of time um and so that like i would be worried about that 
but yeah, at some point they'll probably make some type of change. I just, uh, yeah, I would just be concerned that they <laughs> that they screw it up again. But I, they have new management than compared to like the past and the you know the GameCube Wii Wii U eras. And so I'm I'm more optimistic that the current generation of Nintendo leadership gets it, but. But we'll see. And obviously, like Maria, you mentioned, like they do a lot of R&D around like just random Nintendo things. And it's just so Nintendo to do that. But it actually like the funny thing about Nintendo is like, you know, they don't really seem to care about creating like value. They just care about creating, you know, like fun experiences and, you know, all power to them for for doing that. But those those things don't matter. Like like they don't move the, the needle for the company at all. And um, if anything, they're probably distracting from other elements that could add much more value, like taking additional steps to improve their online services or like higher subscription tiers or create esports around, you know, Smash Bros or, or whatever. They, you know, they just make little racing games in life and like toothbrush games, <laughs> things like that. So, <laughs> so as a gamer, I appreciate all that Nintendo does to kind of push the boundaries. But as a, you know, a business observer, that's the thing that makes me the most, the most nervous. But anyways, I don't think we have anything to worry about there anytime soon. I have a feeling there's, there's more switch to come um, for, for a while, but yeah, at some point, whatever that next thing looks like, that's when I will start to get a little a little nervous. But um, you know, besides that, Nintendo also has you know it has a solid business, but it has always underinvested in and never cared about many emerging trends. And you know, mobile probably most notably. And as I mentioned, that mindset has made Nintendo more niche and just a smaller part of the games market than it used to be. Um, and it seems like that's still their mentality going going forward. And I'm curious what you all think about that. Do you like the fact that Nintendo is so focused and that it's holding them back from being bigger than maybe they could otherwise? Like when we see Xbox and PlayStation try to expand in new ways or um, yeah, I'm just curious what you where you fall on that. It also comes down a lot to organizational structure. Because it could be that they're not jumping, they're not jumping on the emerging trends. But mobile isn't really an emerging trend; it's just a it's a defined, a well-defined market. The whole leadership has to be bought in, and the organizational structure has to be there to take on an additional platform because it has different needs. It has um, its own production, its own bets to make, and so I I don't. I haven't fully made my mind as to whether this is a good or a bad thing from Nintendo. I do think it is wise. It is a wise business decision if they don't want to split their focus and if they're passionate about the path that they're taking to not jump into another market. Yeah, I think uh, from from my point of view, and, and I agree with, with a good chunk of what you just said, Marie, I think that from the the business perspective, you're like, you want to see more out of Nintendo. At the same time, they're not, they don't have the organizational structure to move fast. Like they, they've almost always played in a close ecosystem, their ecosystem at their timelines at their pace because they control the, the platform and the content. And they've, you know, basically end to end from, from hardware to software. Um, so them, you know, having this organizational history of, of just playing in their own timeline on their own, at their own speed in their own terms, uh, I don't think it, it would be a very deep organizational change to get them to, it's not only split focus, but it's like changing the culture from within to get them to play in a different way in additional markets. Yeah. Yeah. It's just questioning like what it means to be Nintendo, right? Like, and like what you stand for in your games, because it seems like with free to play, they just sort of refuse to, to play that free to play game and do what it takes to succeed because it came at a cost of how they wanted to expose their IP. I kind of wish they would figure it out. They're not going to. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I have mixed views. As a gamer, I like it. As a business observer, I don't. But that's just it's just sort of is what it is. Um, 
I noticed we, we probably should switch over to the other topic soon, but any final thoughts about Nintendo before we move to the last topic? Yeah, my last thought was just going to be that I, I think that if there was tremendous consumer demand from millions and millions and millions of mobile players uh, who wanted to play any number of uh, Nintendo games on their phones, I'm sure they would hire some people to do it. Uh, I'm just not convinced that the the like intersection of the demographic who loves Nintendo games, the regions in which mobile is super popular, the kinds of games that lend themselves well to mobile, and the, the and then the development cycle for building and maintaining those kinds of games are all aligned. So I I think it's something that I'm sure Nintendo is like given a lot of thought to and has decided against for reasons that like maybe we just don't know very well. Cool. All right. Go Alyssa. <laughs> Okay, so uh, part of what I was tasked with looking into, partially because of what we do at Powder, is community play. And I know in the last the last episode of the roundtable, Seb from Bitcraft mentioned that the trends that are bubbling up going into 2023 include generative AI, of course, but then also creative distribution relying on community. Um, one thing that, you know, we, the word community is bandied about again and again uh, in gaming uh, both inside of the games themselves, in the platforms that uh, support the industry. But community can mean a whole bunch of things. It could mean literally banding together to help solve problems. It can mean playing together for a common goal in you know multiplayer games. Uh, it could also mean playing against each other. But I wanted to kind of pose the question to everybody, you know, what do you think the future of community building in gaming looks like? And you know, how can a community play together? What does that even mean? I have I have strong thoughts and opinions. Uh, <laughs> I bet you do. Because, because that's, uh, that's what I think of uh, every day, pretty much. Um, and very much on the, on the nature of, of what we do at Captain TV. Um, you know, what we're building is, is games to play as a community. So it's games for streamers to play live with their community. A lot of what we think about is how do we enable streamers to build their community? So it is it is very much a question of like, what does it mean to be a community? What does it mean to play as a community? Um, and what, you know, what is that interaction within the community? In this case, we do have kind of a, the streamers. So there's also kind of like a different dynamic from, you know, just like a community of, of folks coming together, we have that as well, but it's it's also kind of like this dynamic of like streamer and the rest of their community. Um, I think that one one of the things that really is very powerful for you know from what I've seen in how streamers and their communities interact, and you know when we think about like this community play, a lot of it you know in the past we've really relied in the gaming industry on on our competitive nature, right? So it's like banding together against, you know, someone or against each other even, right? Within the community. Um, what we tend to see more is people wanting to play together and like, you know, get coming together towards like just achieving a common goal in in general. And that could be, you know, being being a boss in a, in a dungeon. It could be, um, you know, exploring uh a map or you know whatever it may be but i think that the the collaborative portion of like hey together we we make more than than if we were playing on our own that is really really powerful from you know what what we see is is how players come and interact with our games and on a you know daily basis and just like this this need and this desire of like we want to like support each other and kind of build each other uh, and connect with each other. So for me, like just like community, it, it, it really means kind of like this coming together, this this elevating each other. Uh, and it can look in like many different ways, depending on like the platforms that we're talking about, like games that we're talking about and like how, how do you express it? Um, I think that's what's fascinating of, of the space and exploring the space further uh, is how how do we then kind of enable um, players because players are going to be way more creative than uh, when they 
get together than than any any of us in any one team. So it's like, how do we enable them to to just like come together and like surprises as well? Yeah, I I think the feature of community play is digging deeper into allowing players to create their own game experience. Game makers becoming more like dungeon masters, where instead of setting all of the details, penciling in the whole world, coloring it, you create the rules, and then you allow the community as they're playing either to build on top of what has been um, yeah, set as the rules or creating this world that they have to discover together through lore, through tidbits, through hidden maps, through hidden experiences. I think we've gone from linear games to open world games. And I think the next evolution in that open world is the dungeon master games. Now, I think that what really excites me about blockchain technology is um, maybe some tech that allows us to do that. Maybe there are other solutions to go forward. Um, but like the fondest memories I have are playing D&D, where it's a homebrew campaign. And for about a year and a half now, discovering all of the different elements of the world and building up my character that I really love. And I think being able to like slip into that character for three hours every fortnight is just such a mind relief from I guess the world and general life and reality. I think more and more people will want to build their own character that is personalized, that they created in a world that they help build through their storytelling. I love I love the analogy of like the the, the dungeon master. Like, because I think about it as like how do we enable communities to like express themselves? And I think like that's that's a, a very beautiful way of putting it. It's like it, you know we're creating a world and like now now go at it mm -hmm. uh and they'll you know explore it in in very different ways that maybe we and probably we would have never thought of yeah yeah i sort of struggle to answer this question because the the future of com community is just going to mean so many different things to different people and in different circumstances you know whether it's a community like in a game or around a streamer or around an esports team um so i I sort of struggle to have like a pithy take, but I guess to I'm just excited for like a wide range of things. Like we mentioned Web3, like that brings people together because of shared incentives. And that's something new. You know, NFT is unlocked some type of exclusivity tier and community. And that's something new to experiment with. I'm pretty excited about, you know, massively interactive live events, miles, you know, just as another way for fans to come together around some type of event and have fun together at scale in a new in a new way. I've you know been looking at you know um, esports and Team Liquid. They have a, like a platform called Liquid Plus, which they basically built their own software platform for fans that connects to Discord and other platforms and kind of like tracks fan activity and gives rewards. And you know I think across more you know, more organizations, something like building your own platform that's cross ecosystem that kind of reflects what you want your fans to be and who they are. That's interesting. Um, and then obviously UGC, you know, enabling, enabling greater creation in the past and greater rewards in the past for building things for people to share, uh, you know, those experiences together and better embedding that. That has a lot of potential to, you know, increase the community in new ways too. So my head's sort of all over the place, but um, I guess in general though, like the, the, the breadth and pace of kind of the, the innovation is what makes me ex excited to be a part of community because all these things sound fun and exciting and in different ways and level up the experience of just being part of something. Yeah, and I think I think for for me, even in the last week, I feel like I've seen so many interesting and varied examples of community. Like it's a community meaning people like giving part of their time and energy in order to contribute to a greater whole. Um, whether that's you know I, we mentioned the Star Atlas example in FTX, where where their gaming community in Discord was giving them ideas for how to extend their runway. Uh, and that's, you know, 
being very transparent with everybody about the financial situation you're in. It's, you know, like when a streamer says, I need to drive a hundred downloads to the, to my sponsor. And there's a ticker on the side so that the, the viewers know that they need to help the streamer, even if they're not opening their wallets themselves. And then I think, you know, on, on powder where we have uh, UGC clips, where we are able to give people rewards for winning uh, quests and challenges across many different kinds of games. We saw, uh, you know, a kind of creative use of the platform this week where uh, one of our super users was win- was grinding for hours and hours, winning rewards and then redistributing them to his growing YouTube following. Uh, and it was such an interesting Use case also because um, then a lot of his followers were then trying to to get rewards to then give back to him. Anyway, it, it's it it's just a kind of a glimmer, as you had mentioned, Aaron, and also Tammy, about how how many different iterations there are on community and the ways in which people like band together or you know try to find some symbiosis between uh, these relationships. Uh, in in gaming communities in ways that we kind of don't know where it goes yet. Yeah, and I I think what what really just just may to close close it up. Um, what I really like about where as as a whole the industry is thinking about community is that you know it we've kind of gone through these cycles of like trying to distance ourselves from like the community that is building around your game uh, and kind of having kind of this wall between the community and the game developer. Uh, and that is, you know, in, in some cases like that, that was very much what was happening. Uh, I feel like there's, there's kind of this resurgence. Maybe it's, it's because of um, the, the communities that I am seeing more these days, but I feel like there's a resurgence of like a much more positive uh, interaction between the community, the players, uh, how the, those communities are building up and, you know, the, the game developers not kind of creating these walls uh, between the two. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's a relationship. Like you, you, you can't exist as a gaming industry or a game developer without the community that builds around your game, whatever that looks like and whatever that means. Uh, and vice versa, like the community, like, you know, it's, it's a two-way relationship. They, they need the, the team to be in a good spot so that they can continue to, uh, you know, put out you know, new games or new content or whatever it may be. So um, I think what's really exciting to me is also the the much more positive um, kind of messaging and discourse around community and kind of bringing down those walls. Uh, all right. Well, I think we'll wrap up the episode here. Thank you, everyone, for joining. I was, yeah, so many topics, lots of interesting discussions. And you can find us on the Navic Discord, sign up to the free Navic newsletter. And again, if you enjoy the content, if you can subscribe and help it share with other people. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.